Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. And here in the studio, I have the NOLA history guy, uh, Mr. Edward Brantley. So nice to see you today. It's nice to see you. Finally get to meet people I talk to all the time online in for real. Yeah. My, my goal for 2019 is to turn... Uh, Strangers who are friends online into They're true friends, friends and getting to meet them idea. in yeah. person because there are people out there that I feel like we connect with and we realize that we have connected, but well, you really haven't. <laughs> yeah, this, this actually this 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 get together shoots down one of my goals though because I was going to sneak into the restaurant and see if anybody noticed. But anyway, I might, I'll still do it anyway and see if anybody. Well, uh, so for my listeners out there, I asked. Uh, Edward, to come and join me in the studio because uh, New Orleans history is near and dear to my heart. Uh, our food, our history, our culture, and every day is history in New Orleans. Either we're creating and making new history or we're we're learning about the past. And I wanted to get you in to talk a little bit about your books, but particularly focused on food. And... Uh, you know, one of the first questions that I asked uh, for my listeners out there, one of the first questions I asked when he sat down was, we got to talk about Chinatown because New Orleans is like the only place on the planet that doesn't seem to have a Chinatown. Why is that? What is that all about? <laughs> the, okay, first, the, the, be, before I say anything, I'm going to give credit where credit is due and give a shout out to Mr. Winston Ho. Uh, from uh, University of New Orleans, because most of what I know about Chinatown, other than going to the House of Lee when I was a kid, which actually is part of the story, um, uh, is is from him. Because I went to a talk that he did, uh, of all places, kind of creepy at, at Lake Lawn Cemetery, right? You know, in the <laughs> chapel because it was big, and you know that's where they could do it. But um, but but Winston is a is a he's he does he's done an incredible amount of research on Chinese burial practices in the South and Chinese cemeteries. Like, did you know that at uh, Cypress Grove Cemetery at the, uh, at, at the, uh, the uh, uh, Canal and City Park Avenue, there is a big Chinese mausoleum because the Chinese, well, the, the, the thing about the thing about the Chinese and uh, is that they don't, they want to, when they die, they want to be buried uh, back in China. So you had all these people that were over here for whatever reason, but when they died, they put them, uh, they buried, they, well, they interred them in this mausoleum at the, you know, at Canal, at the end of Canal Street. And the idea was that they would make arrangements then to put, uh, to put the remains on a ship and get them back to China, because that was always the thing. So it was always temporary. Like if you look in, if you kind of peek into the, the mausoleum, it's all numbered niches. There's no, you know, there's. There's there's no trace of anybody because that wasn't ever so anyway so I'm at this talk and everything and uh, so he starts going into uh, talking about how the Chinese got to New Orleans in the first place and it has to do more with Reconstruction in the 1880s than anything else you know it's like uh, after the Civil War of course uh, the you know the, the slaves were emancipated then the Thirteenth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment the slaves get uh, enslaved Africans are now American citizens and free and everything else so that the economics of working the plantations has now changed dramatically. And this is before the plant, the planters 
before they could work out the idea of, of sharecropping, you know, so they thought they could just replace the replace the Africans or the African-Americans at that point. So they, they thought maybe they could convince Chinese folks to work the plantations uh, for pay, obviously. Uh, but basically what happened was, is that, you know, the, 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 the Chinese uh, Chinese came in basically from uh, into into the United States, from San Francisco and from Los Angeles made their way to the West. Some actually came around the Horn and went to New York and Baltimore. And so from both locations, they kind of converge on New Orleans, just like everybody else, right? Um, the planters up the river thought they could hire Chinese folks, basically, well, I, no other way to put it, to be their slaves, right? To be to be the, the, the farm labor for the plantations. And they took, the, the, well, the, the Chinese were free people. They weren't enslaved. So they took one look at what the planters wanted them to do. And they said, forget this. You know, I mean, right. this, is, this ain't happening, right? So um, basically, uh, they, uh, so, so the, the a Chinese community in the city, because, you know, basically, you know, when you, when you don't want to work on the farm, what do you do? You move to the city, right? So, so this is in the 1880s or so, 1890s, and there starts to be a pocket of more of a concentration between uh, what's now uh, right around what's now Elk Place. So you go, you know, Canal and Elk right there uh, by the Sanger, you know, which ramp, it's Rampart on one side, and then it gets kind of twisted with the studio. They kind of branch off. So it's that, that little area, it's Elk Place right across from from Basin Street and, uh, you know, Krauss and everything. And then go in uh, a, a few blocks towards towards Tulane, and there starts to be a bit of a residential pocket of Chinese folks there. And the my favorite line from this talk was in question and answers. Winston Ho takes a question and says, this, is this woman in the audience, and she says, so what happened to the Chinese? And he says, well, they moved to Metairie. And it was no joke. He was, you know, right. I mean, everybody's laughing because it's like, you know, well, you know, that's what white people did in the 60s, right? You know, but this is this pretty much in the 50s what there was, you know, there was there was just there was land out in Jefferson Parish. There was, you know, uh, the, the subdivisions were being drained. Things were opening up a little bit. And the Chinese uh, had moved, just decided we're going to set up shop. And that's where you start seeing. Uh, you start seeing the, and this is, you know, I'm, this is no joke. So you know, it's like, uh, you, you can't, don't, nobody get offended by this, right? Is the thing is you start seeing Oriental Cleaners, and then they became Oriental Trading Company, and then Lee's Cleaners, and well, the Lee family started becoming a bit of a thing. So they had Lee's Cleaners, had several different locations, and then somebody in the Lee family opened up the restaurant side of things and opened up a Chinese place called the House of Lee. You know where um, where the, uh, the Mellow Mushroom that just closed yes. right there, that corner? That was this Cantonese-looking Chinese kind of stereotype what Americans think a Chinese two-story, three-story building would look like. And from the 50s to the 80s, that was the House of Lee. Now, it was Cantonese food, so it was incredibly popular because it was incredibly bland. I mean, this is like in the 50s and 60s when um, even Creole food was subtle. You know, it's like this is pre, I, I, I always like to say pre-Prudhomme. And yeah. so, you know, I think everybody gets that one. You know, it's like, let's dump some cayenne pepper on this and burn it, you know, but, you know, God, I, I love him. God rest his soul. But anyway, yeah. Um, so, but, so basically the Chinese got to the point where they, they, they moved to Metairie and became a big part. You know, you have, uh, you know, you, Harry Lee became a, Harry Lee was one of that, that 
generation of, you know, immigrants that then they put their children in college and he becomes a lawyer, then he becomes a politician, runs for sheriff and becomes the most powerful, basically the most powerful politician in the state of Louisiana. Absolutely. So that's that's what happened. We we had a Chinatown for a little while downtown and then they died and went to the suburbs like everybody so else. Do you think that move to the suburbs is why the we don't when we think of New Orleans cuisine, we don't even incorporate the flavors of China into our cuisine because that group was here, but then they moved in mass somewhere Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and well, there, there's a couple of things with that. So um, there's OK. So first you have. Yeah, that the, there there wasn't Creole cuisine kind of just buried everybody, right? You know, it's like, it wasn't, you, you, you know, it's like, you know, we, we call things Creole Italian, Creole French, right? That's because no matter who was running, no matter who was owning or running the restaurant, African-Americans were, black folks were in the kitchen cooking the way black folks wanted because that's what white folks wanted because the black folks cooked for them all the time. And so you call it Creole Italian. All right. So it's, Kind of black people food with red gravy, as opposed to Creole French, which is kind of maybe with a cream sauce. Yeah, but right. it, it, so so the Chinese just didn't. Yeah, they, you couldn't knock that down. Nobody was interested. That's where the House of Lee did well because, like I said, they they geared themselves toward Cantonese food, Sichuan food. No, no, yeah. but, no, it's no, not, not happening. Not the time and place. Right, in not that happening moment. yet. Right. So that became popular, and then you start seeing, and then same thing. It's like you see places opening up on the West Bank with the same kind of idea because it's less expensive rent. You could open up in a strip mall, that kind of thing, and so that starts happening. There's one other thing in terms of Chinese food in New Orleans that m- throws the biggest monkey wrench, and that was the end of the Vietnam War. Because of what is, you know, popularly known in history as as the, the the group of people called the boat people. Okay, so the Vietnam War ends. Ford doesn't know what to do. They start taking refugees. By the time Carter becomes president in seventy seven, they they're starting to get the act together on resettling. You know, it's like let's face it, we we have a problem. These people can't stay because of us, and so you know, so so you see this big influx of refugees. Now, if you look at where, where Vietnam is, you know, geographically. It's semi-tropical to tropical. It's hot. It's humid. The flavors, it's, the temperature, the it's everything. It's full of water. Everything is just... So where did they relocate all these folks? They relocated them from Galveston to Biloxi, right? And what's, you know, Houston? Nah. You know, Texas, not 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 quite working right. Southwest Louisiana, the distance between the Gulf Coast... It, Southeastern Louisiana was perfect, right? And that's why... Fo- and, well, also, too, because the Vietnamese were so incredibly... Uh, French Catholic, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, that whole thing. So m- migrating into New Orleans. So now you have this incredibly large Vietnamese community. Um, and you see it to a lesser extent with the Korean community as well. But you know how one of the things that, that um, the Asian communities had a tendency to do is you, you everybody pulls their money and you buy a business. And then the next family, they leverage that business to buy the next one and the next one and the next one, right? Okay, and so that's what happens. Well, when you're, I, I can remember the, the 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 one thing I remember because I worked with a guy who his family bought. Do you remember Roy Rogers roast beef? 
the fast food place? Yes, vaguely. Yeah, it's like an Arby's, right? Okay, same same business model. It's you know, slice roast beef sandwiches. Okay, and there was a there were a couple of of franchises in New Orleans, and it didn't really it was flopping because Burger King was you know stomping on everything. So there was an a, 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 and basically it was an Asian family opened up a Chinese restaurant in an old Roy Rogers on uh, on Gentilly Boulevard. So now I, I do I, – my day gig is to teach, is do computer training and consulting and that kind of – the history books are fun, but trust me, they don't, you know, they don't pay a ton, right? So, <laughs> and it's, okay, so, um, so I meet a guy, start working with a, a, a Vietnamese guy, and it turns out his family owns the Chinese restaurant on Gentilly Boulevard. And, you're, I'm, and you stop oh. and think and go, hmm. Okay, yeah, but that makes sense because, well, frankly um, – one, well, you know, one of the other problems, well, to, to, to gosh, I, I, I hold that thought because there's another thought on the Chinese folks. I'll get back to that. Um, yeah, because there just aren't, there's no, we don't have a Chinese community to build, China, to make Chinese restaurants. And, and you know, like uh, uh, Vietnamese food, it's, I, I think it's okay to say this in a historic context that people, you know, Vietnamese food and Korean food, people always look down on because it's the whole you know, you never, you know, you, you, the whole dog and cat thing, right? You know, it's like, it's, it's, you know, this is questionable. It's the butt of bad jokes. Right. That's, yes. thank you. That's, that's the perfect way to put it. So, you're right. Okay. So there, so you have this whole thing going. So what do the Vietnamese families do? They open Chinese restaurants. Why? Because people will go eat Kung Pao chicken and they'll go eat Mandarin chicken. And Mandarin because chicken it's is. It's more Americanized right. at the time and it's more familiar exactly. where the community's yeah. not quite ready to embrace. They're not quite ready for a noodle bowl, right? Or bun. How can you say you're not ready for bun me? It's a <laughs> freaking ham po' boy, right? You know, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but that's exactly it, right? So, and 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 again, there's some so somewhere in, at some point in the 90s, Vietnamese food became cool. So all the people who owned Vietnamese restaurants are kind of coming out of the closet now. A, a classic example of that is um, on Transcontinental and Veterans in Mattery. There is an Oriental grocery and Everybody, it really is called the Oriental. That's not me being a white guy. That they really call it the Oriental Grocery. And right next to that was a place called the Chinese Village. Well, it's a Vietnamese place now. Why? Because that's who took over. You know, the, one of the things that happened with with the Chinese families who actually did open restaurants, they became victims of their own success. There was a restaurant on Metairie Road called the Great Wall. Mm-hmm. Really nice little hole in a little great, you know, great hole in the wall is what it was. This nice little Chinese place, go for lunch, have a nice little dinner, you know, kind of, you know, they would kick the spice up if you wanted it the whole bit. It was run by a couple that, that by the time they were in their 70s, they'd raised like three kids, like two doctors and a lawyer or a doctor and Nobody two lawyers. Nobody wanted to take over the Thank family you. business. Right, and I'm sure you see that all the time in, you know, because you're, you know, you're, you're, your ears to the ground and everything in the business, right? That, you know, it's like, um, I ate at Napoleon House the other day and somebody's like, didn't the Brennans take it over? He said, yeah, it's because they kind of ran out of people in the family. You know, you, you sell because nobody wants it. So here's this little Chinese place. These people bust their tails for decades, sell, you know, making good food. And the kids don't want to run the restaurant because they're doctors and lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, that, and, and I think that's what happened with a lot of those places. So now you have Vietnamese families looking to do the same thing, basically. So, yeah, so we went from people who got lured into coming to New Orleans in terms of the Chinese, for jobs, didn't like the working conditions, so they made themselves, they, they, they rewrote the rules, is what it boiled down to. 
And then the Vietnamese, of course, were looking for a new home after the war, and, well, they found one. And, you know, and I... I think this is definitely a topic that deserves more research, you know, to think about this community and, you know, how it moved and how the flavors are, the Chinese community, the flavors are, it's just not even in our list of, of, but there, but there's a a large community that is completely, in my opinion, not paid attention to. Exactly. Yeah. There's, um, well, yeah, it's, it's, like I said, we have, you know, Afro-Caribbean flavors have come in from, you know, generations of Africans coming to New Orleans, generations of Spanish, Latin, everything but Mexican until after the storm coming up into the city. And now we have Mexican flavors as well. Um, But then, you know, you say that you don't see the flavors, but I I mean, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but, you know, you go to Wake and Bacon, there's a bottle of Sriracha on every table. So, you know, it's, it's, and, it's subtle, right? And you know. I think that's kind of, you know, that kind of brings us to where we are now. You know, when we opened the show, I said, well, we're always making history because things yes. are constantly changing. And I feel as New Orleanians and as Louisianians, we're in this this weird spot where we want to hold on to the history. We want to preserve what's there but we're also super excited about the groups and the flavors and the, I I feel like experimentation that has happened in the last 15 years here in New Orleans, that we have broken out of that old school mold and we're trying to find the balance to still protect it. It's, it's kind of funny. Like um, I have on, on, on the shelf at the house, I have a cookbook and it is honestly for years was just one of my go-tos it was called Emerald's New New Orleans Cuisine. And you look at anything that Emerald Lagasse does now, and you say, this is, he's the old New Orleans now, you know. But but there was the just that whole Brennan's, Galatois, Antoine's kind of Creole, Marchand de Van, sauce on eggs kind of thing. And then, then Emerald comes in and actually, well, Prudhomme starts cooking. Well, well first off, Prudhomme starts cooking real Cajun, right? Yes. That's a that's a big deal. And and of course, who's his sous chef and commanders? Emerald, right? So then, boom, he's he follows, and all of a sudden, you start seeing. Yeah, I mean, Nouvelle's a bad word. It's a it's a uh, you know, it's a beer word. You can have beer discussions about Nouvelle cuisine all week, right? But but you know, I I, I can't help but go. My goodness, you know, in the 1860s, where we go in, these darn Italians and their <laughs> crazy food. And what's with this tomato stuff and this, you yep. know, old world, like, you know, new world product to the old world, back to the new world. And, you know, where people going, this is a fad. This is just something that's happening right now. We're going to get past this and let them have their moment. Because I feel like... We're saying those kinds of things today. We, it seems like it's every twenty years, right? You know. So, so I went to this talk at the library at the Jefferson Parish Public Library last week. It's a lady from the Louisiana State Museum. For life, me now, I can't remember her name, but anyway, um, I think it's in my notes. But, it's, uh, but she was talking about uh, Revion dinners, and so in the eighteen sixties, you know, Revion dinners were like waffles with fruit on top because it's midnight, right? You needed to whip something up. By the eighteen nineties, Revion dinners are like you know, roasted quail and and 
oysters, you know, oysters five different ways coming from, you know, all that coming from Paris. And so, yeah, it's every 20 years or so something changes. And we're in, we're definitely in one of those right now because, yeah, it's, I'm 60 years old. So when I say old people, I kind of count myself as old people, but there's old people who just don't want to let it go, you know, and so yeah. if you could predict the future, what do you think is in store 20 years from now? I think we're going to have we're going to have as much Mexican influenced food as there was Creole Italian food before Emerald and Prudhomme. And it's just a natural that's a natural progression. You know, we at New Orleans did we did not have a serious Mexican community. We've had a Latin community forever because of Central America. We've had Nicaraguans, we've got Hondurans, we've got Guatemalans, but we have not had Mexicans. And one of the reasons why is because migration up from Mexico pretty much stopped at Houston. Houston is swallowing the state of Texas, right? So the construction, whatever, there was always jobs. So after the hurricane, all of a sudden there were opportunities and Mexicans came over from Houston is what it boiled down to. Well, you know what? They stayed. <laughs> And we now have, you know, we have, we've got Casa Borrega, we've got legitimate, yeah, yeah, you got Felipe's, but, you know, you've got, you, you, you're starting to see, and, and it's, and, and those, that's the flavors and spices that are going to start coming in. And hopefully the, well, you start seeing some of the, you know, you, 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 we're not going to have the Chinese, but we're going to have the Vietnamese and it's going to continue, they're going to continue to mainstream what they do into everything anyway. So, yeah, you might still see puff, something in puff pastry, but maybe it's going to taste more like a taco. I don't know. Yeah. You know, about, not that I'm complaining. I'd you know. say about eight years ago, I told someone asked me what my prediction was. And I said, I think in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see pupusas at, you know, fine yeah. dining restaurants. We're going to start to see the Honduran cuisine come yes. more into mainstream. And we are seeing that. And you realize Absolutely. it's like once there's New Orleanians find a food or a flavor they like, we absolutely embrace it. Mm -hmm. And then we call it our own. Yeah. I mean, can't you see like a piece of a street taco is an amuse-bouche, you know, and that kind of thing. Exactly. You know, it's like, you know, just people coming up with crazy ideas that, but that's, and, and you know what? You're still going to have somebody that's going to want like pompano because it's fresh fish and you're going to, yeah. you know, you're going to want trout one year because, hey, I mean, who doesn't like fish and butter? You know, I mean. <laughs> you can't go wrong with thank that. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, it, you know, for me, I like Arno's is very near and dear to my heart. I love to dine there. When I dine there, I eat the same thing. I order the same things off the menu. I have the turtle soup. I have the shrimp or no, you know, I'll have the pop duarte. Yep. Like mm -hmm. it is, yep. it is the exact same thing. But then when I get to go somewhere like Coquette or to, um, to Carrollton Market, I'm ordering the special. I'm ordering the, yes. the interesting yes. seasonal mm -hmm. dish because in my mind, I'm more adventurous of a diner yeah. when I go there because I don't have that heartfelt nostalgia for a dish right. that has developed. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, when um, my, my, my son, my older son, he's 30 years old. He's, a, he's an 03. He's a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy. When he comes home, he has 
two big focuses. He wants to, because I, I think we just raised him right. You know, he wants to go to like Antoine's or Two Jacks and get something really old school. And then, then he'll say, well, where else can we go? And I'll say, well, how about this or that? And then, and he's the same way. It's like, we went, we went to Coquette and he, he and I, the, the everybody else in the group ordered off the menu. We're like, we, we stuck to the special card, right? You know, it's like, what, well, that's what, they're, they're, this is where their head is tonight. Let's, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm not telling telling you something you don't know. You know, it's like, I, I'm the same way. I go to Wake and Bacon maybe three times a week because Zach and, and Comrade let me write. You know, they basically I should pay them rent, office space, you know, that kind of thing. But <laughs> I, I don't order off the menu. I was like, what, what, what did y'all cook? What are y'all thinking? What's in that bowl up there? You know, and yeah, it's specials, right? You know, it's like, let's but let's be creative. You know, it's and and I think that's something that, well, that's why, Every one of these restaurants you see from, you know, Antoine's and Commander's and Brennan's all the way to shoot, even the best restaurants where you, you, the, the chefs break out and then they want to do their own thing. And then that's and so what are you doing? You're going, you know, you go get your thing, but you go get you try their thing because, you know, they've been I don't want to say chained up, but, you know, the, yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're not as creative. You don't have the creative freedom. And then sometimes you get in that creative freedom mood and you're creative and you're free, and then you're like, I just need to go back to easy and comfort and what right. is yeah. familiar. Right. And so I think, just as you said, you know, every 20 years our mm-hmm. food changes. I think we as cooks change and evolve, and our I'll restaurants change yeah. and evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we start to to go from one right. I, from one extreme to the other. It's not uncommon. Yeah, and, and and but there's always that demand for like. The familiar comfort food, everything else. You know, it's like people make a like in in the when I wrote the book about Krauss Department Store, everybody's like, "Oh, that's where the Bakes were." I said, "The Bakes were there for three years. The store was there for a hundred. You know why that diner lasted from well, actually, it was 1930 to 1997, right? Why did that diner last 67 years? Because they made red beans on Monday and they made meatloaf on Wednesday, and yeah, maybe it was you know." You probably had, you know, obviously a different cook in 1960 than you had in 1968. And so there was subtle things, but people want their comfort food. And their consistency. Right. right. Yeah. It's a, well, this has been so much fun. I, I think know. you and I could sit and talk about food and history for hours. And for my listeners out there that want to know a little bit more about New Orleans history, the books, I know it's a great holiday gift. I believe in giving books, not junk and stuff that people are going to just discard. So uh, tell everybody how they can find out more and where they can get your stuff. Online, nolahistoryguide.com. All one word, nolahistoryguide.com. On Facebook, same thing, but, you know, separate it out. There's a page. Just put in the search box on Facebook, put in Nola History Guy, and then you'll see the my page for that one, too. And that's the two best places. Nola History Guy on Twitter as well, but Twitter's a zoo, right? You know, it's like... Message me if you if that's your thing, but you know, but yeah, that's the, the the big ones. And when you go to either one, of course, yeah, it is the holiday, so big pictures of books right in the front, you know. <laughs> but that's the idea. Yeah. Well, we are all out of time today, but I have had so much fun. For know, my listeners out there, this has been the Nola History Guy with me, <laughs> I'm Mr. Edward Brantley, and uh, you've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth. Until next time, ciao. Bye.